Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with the first chapter of The Wretched with the Earth, and we're still not finished the first section. As I said, it's a long one and it's a little bit ongoing. As a quick refresher on the previous couple of weeks, early on the chapter discussed the ways in which colonialism in itself removes the old ways of society and replaces its own ways that are preferable to the colonialist interest. Removing previous practices of the colonized people and undermining them, decrying them, dismissing them in various ways. Last week's reading in particular then talked a little bit about how colonialism narrows the possibility space for the colonized people, it redefines what the colonized people can be, both in the current moment, but also what they could inspire to be, and what revolution and decolonization could look like. So let's continue going through that reading. Nowadays a theoretical problem of prime importance is being set, on the historical plane as well as on the level of political tactics, by the liberation of the colonies. When can one affirm that the situation is ripe for a movement of national liberation? In what form should it first be manifested? Because the various means whereby decolonization has been carried out have appeared in many different aspects. Reason hesitates and refuses to say which is a true decolonization and which a false. We shall see that for a man who is in the thick of the fight, it is an urgent matter to decide on the means and the tactics to employ, that is to say, how to conduct and organize the movement. If this coherence is not present, there is only a blind will toward freedom, with the terribly reactionary risks which it entails. What are the forces which, in the colonial period, open up new outlets and engender new aims for the violence of colonized peoples? In the first place, there are the political parties and the intellectual or commercial elites. Now, the characteristic feature of certain political structures is that they proclaim abstract principles but refrain from issuing definite commands. The entire action of these nationalist political parties during the colonial period is action of the electoral type, a string of philosophico-political dissertations on the themes of the rights of peoples to self-determination the rights of man to freedom from hunger and human dignity, and the unceasing affirmation of the principle, one man, one vote. The national political parties never lay stress upon the necessity of a trial of armed strength, for the good reason that their objective is not the radical overthrowing of the system. Pacifists and legalists, they are in fact partisans of order, the new order, but to the colonialist bourgeoisie they put bluntly enough the demand which to them is the main one. Give us more power. On the specific question of violence, the elite are ambiguous. They are violent in their words and reformist in their attitudes. When the nationalist political leaders say something, they make it quite clear that they do not really think it. The characteristic on the part of the nationalist political parties should be interpreted in the light both of the makeup of their leaders and the nature of their followings. The rank and file of a nationalist party is urban. The workers, primarily school teachers, artisans, and small shopkeepers who have begun to profit, at a discount to be sure, from the colonial setup, have special interests at heart. What this sort of following demands is the betterment of their particular lot. 
increased salaries, for example. The dialogue between these political parties and colonialism is never broken off. Improvements are discussed, such as full electoral representation, the liberty of the press and liberty of association, reforms are debated, thus it need not astonish anyone to notice that a large number of natives are militant members of the branches of political parties which stem from the mother country. These natives fight under an abstract watchword, government by the workers. And they forget that in their country it should be nationalist watchwords which are first in the field. The native intellectual has clothed his aggressiveness in his barely veiled desire to assimilate himself to the colonial world. He has used his aggressiveness to serve his own individual interests. Thus there is very easily brought into being a kind of class of franchised slaves, or slaves who are individually free. What the intellectual demands is the right to multiply the emancipated, and the opportunity to organize a genuine class of emancipated citizens. On the other hand, the mass of the people have no intention of standing by and watching individuals increase their chances of success. What they demand is not the settler's position of status, but the settler's place. The immense majority of natives want the settler's farm. For them, there is no question of entering into competition with the settler. They want to take his place. The peasantry is systematically disregarded for the most part by the propaganda put out by the nationalist parties. And it is clear that in the colonial countries, the peasants alone are revolutionary, for they have nothing to lose and everything to gain. The starving peasant, outside the class system, is the first among the exploited to discover that only violence pays. For him there is no compromise, no possible coming to terms. Colonization and decolonization are simply a question of relative strength. The exploited man sees that his liberation implies the use of all means, and that of force first and foremost. When in 1956, after the capitulation of the Monsieur Guy Mollet to the settlers in Algeria, the Front de Libération Nationale, in a famous leaflet, stated that colonialism only loosens its hold when the knife is at its throat. No Algerian really found these terms too violent. The leaflet only expressed what every Algerian felt at heart. Colonialism is not a thinking machine, nor a body endowed with reasoning faculties. It is violence in its natural state, and it will only yield when confronted with greater violence. At the decisive moment, the colonialist bourgeoisie, which up till then has remained inactive, comes into the field. It introduces that new idea, which is in proper parlance, a creation of the colonial situation, nonviolence. In its simplest form, this nonviolence signifies to the intellectual and economic elite of the colonized country that the bourgeoisie has the same interests as they, and that it is therefore urgent and indispensable to come to terms for the public good. Nonviolence is an attempt to settle the colonial problem around a green baize table, before any regrettable act has been performed, or irreparable gesture made, before any blood has been shed. But if the masses, without waiting for the chairs to be arranged around the baize table, listen to their own voice and begin communicating outrages and setting fire to buildings, the elite and the nationalist bourgeois parties 
will be seen rushing to the colonialists to exclaim, This is very serious. We do not know how it will end. We must find a solution, some sort of compromise. The idea of compromise is very important in the phenomenon of decolonization, for it is very far from being a simple one. Compromise involves the colonial system and the young nationalist bourgeoisie at one and the same time. The partisans of the colonial system discovered that the masses may destroy everything. Blown up bridges, ravaged farms, repressions, and fighting harshly disrupt the economy. Compromise is equally attractive to the nationalist bourgeoisie, who since they are not clearly aware of the possible consequences of the rising storm, are genuinely afraid of being swept away by this huge hurricane, and never stop saying to the settlers, We are still capable of stopping the slaughter. The masses still have confidence in us. Act quickly if you do not want to put everything in jeopardy. One step more, and the leader of the Nationalist Party keeps his distance with regard to that violence. He loudly proclaims that he has nothing to do with these Mau Mau, these terrorists, these throat slitters. At best, he shuts himself off in a no-man's land between the terrorists and the settlers and willingly offers his services as go-between. That is to say, that as the settlers cannot discuss terms with these Mau Mau, he himself will be quite willing to begin negotiations. Thus, it is that the rear guard of the national struggle, that very party of people who have never ceased to be on the other side in the fight, find themselves somersaulted into the van of negotiations and compromise, precisely because that party has taken very good care never to break contact with colonialism. Before negotiations have been set afoot, the majority of nationalist parties confine themselves, for the most part, to explaining and excusing this savagery. They do not assert that the people have to use physical force, and it sometimes even happens that they go so far as to condemn, in private, the spectacular deeds which are declared to be hateful by the press and public opinion in the mother country. The legitimate excuse for this ultra-conservative policy is the desire to see things in an objective light. But this traditional attitude of the native intellectual and of the leaders of the nationalist parties is not, in reality, in the least objective. For, in fact, they are not at all convinced that this impatient violence of the masses is the most efficient means of defending their own interests. Moreover, there are some individuals who are convinced of the ineffectiveness of violent methods. For them, there is no doubt about it. Every attempt to break colonial oppression by force is a hopeless effort, an attempt at suicide, because in the innermost recesses of their brains, the settlers' tanks and aeroplanes occupy a huge place. When they are told, action must be taken, they see bombs raining down on them, armoured cars coming at them on every path, machine gunning and police action, and they sit quiet. They are beaten from the start. There is no need to demonstrate their incapacity to triumph by violent methods. They take it for granted in their everyday life and in their political maneuvers. They have remained in the same childish position as Engels took up in his famous polemic with that monument of puerility, Monsieur During. Quote, in the same way that Robinson Crusoe was able to obtain a sword, we can just as well suppose that Man Friday might appear one fine morning with a loaded revolver in his hand, and from then on, the whole relationship of violence is reversed. 
Man Friday gives the orders and Crusoe is obliged to work. Thus the revolver triumphs over the sword, and even the most childish believer in axioms will doubtless form the conclusion that violence is not a simple act of will, but needs for its realisation certain very concrete preliminary conditions, and in particular the implements of violence, and the more highly developed of those implements will carry the day against primitive ones. Moreover, the very fact of the agility to produce such weapons signifies that the producer of highly developed weapons, in everyday speech the arms manufacturer, triumphs over the producer of primitive weapons. To put it briefly, the triumph of violence depends upon the production of armaments, and this in its turn depends upon production in general, and thus on economic strength, on the economy of the state, and in the last resort on the material means which that violence commands. End quote. Footnote 6. In fact, the leaders of reform have nothing else to say than, with what are you going to fight the settlers? With your knives? Your shotguns? It is true that weapons are important when violence comes into play, since all finally depends on the distribution of these implements. But it so happens that the liberation of colonial countries throws new light on the subject. For example, we have seen that during the Spanish campaign, which was a very genuine colonial war, Napoleon, in spite of an army which reached in the offensives of the spring of 1810, the huge figure of 400,000 men, was forced to retreat. Yet the French army made the whole of Europe tremble by its weapons of war, by the bravery of its soldiers, and by the military genius of its leaders. Face to face with the enormous potentials of the Napoleonic troops, the Spaniards, inspired by an unshakable national ardour, rediscovered the famous methods of guerrilla warfare, which, 25 years before, the American militia had tried out on the English forces. But the natives' guerrilla warfare would be of no value as opposed to other means of violence if it did not form a new element in the worldwide process of competition between trusts and monopolies. In the early days of colonization, a single column could occupy immense stretches of country, the Congo, Nigeria, the Ivory Coast, and so on. Today, however, the colonized country's national struggle crops up in a completely new international situation. Capitalism, in its early days, saw in the colonies a source of raw materials which, once turned into manufactured goods, could be distributed on the European market. After a phase of accumulation of capital, capitalism has today come to modify its conception of the profit-earning capacity of a commercial enterprise. The colonies have become a market. The colonial population is a customer who is ready to buy goods. Consequently, if the garrison has to be perpetually reinforced, if buying and selling slackens off, that is to say, if manufactured and finished goods can no longer be exported, there is clear proof that the solution of military force must be set aside. A blind domination founded on slavery is not, economically speaking, worthwhile for the bourgeoisie of the mother country. The monopolistic group within the bourgeoisie does not support a government whose policy is solely that of the sword. What the factory owners and finance magnates of the mother country expect from their government is not that it should decimate the colonial peoples, but that it should safeguard, with the help of economic conventions, their own legitimate interests. Thus there exists a sort of detached complicity between capitalism and the violent forces which blaze up in colonial territory. 
What is more, the native is not alone against the oppressor. For indeed, there is also the political and diplomatic support of progressive countries and peoples. But above all, there is competition. That pitiless war, which financial groups wage upon each other. A Berlin conference was able to tear Africa into shreds and divide her up between three or four imperial flags. At the moment, the important thing is not whether such and such a region in Africa is under French or Belgian sovereignty, but rather that the economic zones are respected. Today, wars of repression are no longer waged against rebel sultans. Everything is more elegant, less bloodthirsty. The liquidation of the Castro regime will be quite peaceful. They do all they can to strangle Guinea, and they eliminate Mossadegh. Thus, the nationalist leader who is frightened of violence is wrong if he imagines that colonialism is going to massacre all of us. The military will of course go on playing with tin soldiers, which date from the time of the conquest, but higher finance will soon bring the truth home to them. This is why reasonable nationalist political parties are asked to set out their claims as clearly as possible, and to seek with their colonialist opposite numbers, calmly and without passion, for a solution which will take the interests of both parties into consideration. We see that if this nationalist reformist tendency, which often takes the form of a kind of caricature of trade unionism, decides to take action, it will only do so in a highly peaceful fashion, through stoppages of work, in the few industries which have been set up in these towns, mass demonstrations to cheer the leaders, and the boycotting of buses or of imported commodities. All these forms of action serve at one and the same time to bring pressure to bear on the forces of colonialism, and to allow the people to work off their energy. This practice of therapy by hibernation, this sleep cure used on the people, may sometimes be successful. Thus, out of the conference around the green baize table comes the political selectiveness which enables Monsieur Meba, the President of the Republic of Gabon, to state in all seriousness on his arrival in Paris for an official visit, quote, Gabon is independent, but between Gabon and France nothing has changed. Everything goes on as before. End quote. In fact, the only change is that Monsieur Meba is a President of the Gabonese Republic, and that he is received by the President of the French Republic. The colonialist bourgeoisie is helped in its work of calming down the natives by the inevitable religion. All those saints who have turned the other cheek, who have forgiven trespasses against them, and who have been spat on and insulted without shrinking, are studied and held up as examples. On the other hand, the elite of the colonial countries, those slaves set free, when at the head of the movement inevitably end up by producing an ersatz conflict. They use their brother's slavery to shame the slave drivers, or to provide an ideological policy of quaint humanitarianism for their oppressors' financial competitors. The truth is that they never make any real appeal to the aforesaid slaves. They never mobilize them in concrete terms. On the contrary, at the decisive moment, that is to say, from their point of view the moment of indecision, they brandish the dagger of a mass mobilization as the crucial weapon which would bring about, as if by magic, the end of the colonial regime. Obviously, there are to be found at the core of the political parties and among their leaders certain revolutionaries who deliberately turn their backs upon the farce of national independence. But very quickly their questionings, their energy and their anger obstruct the party machine, 
and these elements are gradually isolated, and then quite simply brushed aside. At this moment, as if there existed a dialectic concomitance, the colonialist police will fall upon them. With no security in the towns, avoided by the militants of their former party and rejected by its leaders, these undesirable firebrands will be stranded in county districts. Then it is that they will realize, bewilderedly, that the peasant masses catch on to what they have to say immediately, and without delay ask them the question to which they have not yet prepared the answer. When do we start? This meeting of revolutionaries coming from the towns and country dwellers will be dealt with later on. For the moment, we must go back to the political parties, in order to show the nature of their action, which is all the same progressive. In their speeches, the political leaders give a name to the nation. In this way, the natives' demands are given shape. There is, however, no definite subject matter, and no political or social program. There is a vague outline or skeleton, which is nevertheless national in form, what we describe as minimum requirements. The politicians who make speeches and who write in the nationalist newspapers make the people dream dreams. They avoid the actual overthrowing of the state, but in fact they introduce into their readers' or hearers' consciousness the terrible ferment of subversion. The national or tribal language is often used. Here, once again, dreams are encouraged, and the imagination is let loose outside the bounds of the colonial order. And sometimes these politicians speak of we Negroes, we Arabs, and these terms, which are so profoundly ambivalent, take on during the colonial epoch a sacramental signification. The nationalist politicians are playing with fire. For, as an African leader recently warned a group of young intellectuals, think well before you speak to the masses, for they flare up quickly. This is one of the terrible tricks that destiny plays in the colonies. When a political leader calls a mass meeting, we may say that there is blood in the air. Yet the same leader very often is above all anxious to make a show of force, so that in fact he need not use it. But the agitation which ensues, the coming and going, the listening to speeches, seeing the people assembled in one place, with the police all around, the military demonstrations, arrests, and the deportation of the leaders. All this hubbub makes people think that the moment has come for them to take action. In these times of instability, the political parties multiply their appeals to the left for calm, while on their right they scan the horizon, trying to make out the liberal intentions of colonialism. In the same way, the people make use of certain episodes in the life of the community in order to hold themselves ready and to keep alive their revolutionary zeal. For example, the gangster who holds up the police set on to track him down for days on end, or who dies in single combat after having killed four or five policemen, or who commits suicide in order not to give away his accomplices. These types light the way for the people, form the blueprints for action, and become heroes. Obviously, it's a waste of breath to say that such and such a hero is a thief, a scoundrel, or a reprobate. If the act for which he is prosecuted by the colonial authorities is an act exclusively directed against a colonialist person or colonialist property, the demarcation line is definite and manifest. The process of identification is automatic. And that concludes our reading for this week. Next week, we will continue reading this chapter. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, 
You can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find lots of other leftist podcasts about books, video games, anime, movies. And our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.